Welcome to the Possibility Action Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton, a.k.a. Possibility Man. We're committed to bringing you guests who strive to better people's lives and serve as a force for good in the world. Our guest today is Matt Gagnon. Matt was living the high life in the corporate world. He was earning a six-figure income, owned a large house in the suburbs, and drove a luxury sports car. He also wore designer clothing. He embodied society's definition of success. But behind the mask, Matt was spiraling out of control. He had chronic health conditions and suffered from depression and addiction. But he did not give up on himself and managed to rewrite his life story by rediscovering his core values. Matt is now an executive coach and keynote speaker and author. As a professional coach, he strives to empower others to live their life with a courageous heart. Matt Gagnon, welcome to the Possibility Action Network show. Thank you, my good man. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay, look, I'm looking forward to our conversation. But first, a reminder to our listeners and viewers, follow, like, and share this podcast wherever you find it. Your support matters. The more of you who subscribe, I can get guests like Matt Gagnon. Matt, look, I've been looking forward to talking with you now for several weeks, and I got a ton of questions to ask you. I want to see where this conversation goes. I know that you worked in corporate America at one time, but before that, what were you doing in the world? What was happening for you? I was in college. <laughs> like, okay. All right. um, so, yeah. No, no. I mean, uh, I, uh, I pretty much retail was everything I knew. Uh, for a good 15 years. So I, I started in retail uh, with Staples during my college years. I graduated in 2003 and I worked right through that up until 2015. Um, so I think I started in retail right at 2000. Yeah. And so from there, I just kept going from the field to then field kind of corporate balance. Um, I even did an internship with the San Antonio Spurs briefly while, uh, yeah, in the NBA. So that was a pretty wild time. But yeah, uh -huh. that was that was life prior to going into this was all retail. Gotcha. So look, what did you study in college? What did you study marketing. in college? Marketing, yeah. I see. Okay. And did you do marketing when you worked for this uh, professional team as an intern? No, actually, you know, the funny thing is I, uh, I had never played organized basketball my entire life. <laughs> I was okay. not very good at, this, uh, at the good of the game, but I got there just through sheer grit and determination, you know, this being one of the most uh, competitive internships to get. Okay. And I was destined to get it. I was a huge fan, and I ended up working very closely with uh, the scouting team, uh, with the general manager, um, and uh, it was just a wild experience. So I was kind of all over the place with what I could do. As an intern, you're kind of a catch-all. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. As an intern, and there are many interns that we may be watching this show, what is one or two things that you learned from working with a basketball team, a pro basketball team? That was my first office experience. And what I learned from that is, you know, my boss was Sam Presti, and he ended up becoming the GM of the Oklahoma Thunder. And he, he was a, just a great professional. I remember him saying, no one cares how you got the job done. We knew you would get it done or else we wouldn't have given it to you. So you don't need to tell us how you accomplished it. We gave you the job. We know you can get it done. So get it done. And it, it was really like, it wasn't one of those things where you need to brag about how you got the job done. Look at me, look at me. They're like, no, just get the job done. And so 
it was a different environment. And so it was very much like uh, focused. There wasn't a lot of like chit chat going on. Uh, it was very professional, but they were amazing. Like organization, just seeing the business side of everything was just fascinating. And I was there during the summertime when they were doing draft camp and getting ready for the draft, working players out. I was doing scouting tapes. Uh, it was fantastic. Like what an experience to kind of do a little bit of everything. Understood. But yeah, that yeah. was a big lesson learned was just get the job done. Don't complain, be resourceful and they're going to appreciate it. You'll get bigger and more responsibilities without you having to tell them how you got the job done. Okay. Understood. And, and as you continued your career in the corporate world, um, I saw you once saying that you sold S-O-L-D, your soul to corporate America. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I, I cashed in my boundaries. Like, hmm. I decided to just drive myself into the ground. Like, I would work 24-7 around the clock. You know, retail is one of those industries that doesn't sleep. So it runs on holidays, weekends. It's always on. But I noticed that the more I worked, the faster I responded to emails, the later I stayed up, the more extra responsibilities I signed up for, the more praise I got, the more promotions I got, the more money I got. It fed everything that my ego was starving for. And it also fed my very first addiction, which was praise. Like I had that since I was a kid. And so, yeah, what I did was I did sell my soul because I didn't retail wasn't my dream job. I didn't go into high school or college and say, boy, I'd, I'd love to work in retail. Like that was never, ever a destination, but it gave me an instant high. It was an easy place for me to go and run and flex a, a, just a plethora of different skills. And again, I had zero boundaries. I don't blame retail for burning out. It was me. I only knew what I knew though. But looking back on it, it was, it was totally my fault. I sold my soul, meaning I strayed away from the thing that was most important to me. And that was serving others. And being an entrepreneur, I wanted to start my own business. I had always had different businesses growing up. So this was a, this is one of those things I cashed in on. And I also missed a lot in life. I missed birthday parties and anniversaries and uh, even funerals, uh, just very special events in life. I cashed out. I also forgot that I loved volunteering and being a member of the community. I didn't have friends really outside of work. So I, I gave up a lot and I look back on it and I can't shame myself for it. I can't have regrets for it. I just had to learn from it. Right. So, but in your climb up, because, you know, in your narrative, you, you know, you drove nice, a nice car, you lived in a great neighborhood, you made plenty of money. <laughs> so on your ride, on your ride up, it was feeling pretty good for you, wasn't it? I don't know. I told myself that. Uh-huh. But it wasn't. It wasn't very good. My ego was happy. But the truth is, like, I was overspending because there was something going on inside, like something I wasn't feeding, something that didn't feel right. So I was overspending. I'd overeat. My weight would fluctuate up and down, up and down, up and down, you know, fit to out of shape very easily. Um, I didn't drink alcohol, not until the age of 37, actually. But I was drinking 15 cans of Red Bull a day, and I was taking 60 milligrams of Adderall to keep myself going constantly and for my ADHD because who would I be if I wasn't high energy? That was mm -hmm. what I was known for. And I thought if I couldn't 
deliver at that speed because I was praised for it in sports. I was praised for it in, in work that I would out hustle anybody. I was never complimented for being intelligent. Matter of fact, I, I had a mentor that used to, you know, mock me sometimes and, and wouldn't call me smart, but I was known for being a hard worker. So I yeah, thought if I didn't hustle, I would just be unlovable. But yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a good feeling. Like mm. I felt hollow. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed the praise, but like I said, behind the scenes, yeah, I was making a lot of money, but holy cow, I was check to check sometimes. I ran myself yeah. in the ground. It's that was a that's a scary situation. And yeah. then some medical bills racked up. But no, I credit card debt, the fancy clothes, I overspent hard. Mm -hmm. And you noticed it early on. That's pretty good. Now, you mentioned your addiction and you mentioned two things. One was Red Bull and the other one was Adderall. So were those your addictions? Were you addicted to those things? Yeah, you know, <laughs> Adderall was already given to me for my ADHD. I got diagnosed as an adult and it makes sense because I struggled grade wise in school, but my relationship with it was poor. Like I didn't take it for ADHD. I took it just because it made me go in a million miles an hour um, and it would help me lose weight. So addicted to it. I don't know. I, I, I just had a very poor relationship with it. And what I didn't know, though, was is that I had developed narcolepsy and I didn't know that. So I was working against this illness inside me that I didn't know I had because I was wondering, like, man, is this just burnout? Like, why am I so tired all the time? So it took a lot to medicate myself to keep going at that speed. So, yeah, those uh, those were my addictions. And along with, again, I think um, eating and buying things, those are easily addictions too. So, sure. uh, and I, and I leaned into those, I think eating, you know, food is probably one of the most underrated ones out there. I was a strong emotional leader and I still, still deal with that. And praise is another one that I think is very underrated. So, uh, praise was a very big one. Codependency being a people pleaser. Oh yeah. Like I just didn't know who I was. And so, mm -hmm. I didn't know what my values were. So not knowing my values, I medicated for anything else just to give me a good high to feel full, but it wasn't sustainable. It was gone as soon as I did it. Right. Now you mentioned two things uh, that you struggled with that some people may be struggling with the same thing. I want to make sure that they understand that we understand what they were. You mentioned narcolepsy and also ADHD. Would you give us a glimpse into what both of those uh, are and yeah. how they manifested in your experience? Yeah, ADHD is, um, I think that's probably the most, they give it probably one of the most negative definitions or like term, you know, attention deficit, hyperactive disorder. Holy cow, is that shaming? Uh, it, I see the world differently than other people. It just means I, I learn in a non-conventional way. So anybody with ADHD doesn't have this disorder. We learn differently and we have a different superpower. I have this superpower. It makes it so sometimes I have a hard time paying attention or I'm multitasking all over the place. This is my superpower if I take care of it. And granted, every human being should sleep and eat healthy and work out, be around positive people, meditate. Yeah. But for ADHD, super important. Very, very important. If I do those things and I do those things healthy, ADHD is my superpower. I can get stuff done 
with <laughs> unbelievable laser focus. And I can see I'm a visionary. I can see well beyond, you know, the forest and the trees with, uh, yeah. with that. So I'm grateful for my ADHD. I just had to learn how to, how to harness that animal, just like any superpower with narcolepsy. Boy, that's a, that's a tricky beast. That is, uh, when you have, uh, you just fall asleep. Like it makes you ex exceptionally tired. It's hard to say if it's autoimmune or if it's neuro, but, um, we discovered it through sleep studies and I can fall asleep anywhere. <laughs> like that's my gift. The misconception is people see it on TV and movies and it's just like somebody just goes like that. Right. That's not always the case. I know when the ship's going down, it's like probably the most exhausted feeling you can have where no matter what kind of willpower you can't, you can't keep yourself awake. It's that feeling of just going cross-eyed where you, you know, your head jerks to, to wake up. But yeah, there are certain things that um, trigger it, like uh, certain lighting, fluorescent lights, sitting down too long. It, there are all kinds of different things that can trigger it, but it's not something you can just fight in the moment. Cause I used to shame myself for getting exhausted. I just had to learn to be like, I can't, I, I can't fight this. So I just, I'm going to have to go lay down. That's it. Yeah. So, it's and on top of that, narcolepsy is already rare. Sometimes mm -hmm. it gets paired with something called cataplexy. And I have that too. You can only get cataplexy if you have narcolepsy and they together, they're extremely rare. And that's kind of this weird muscle weakness disorder that can cause these cataplectic type seizures. They're not true seizures, but they can be extreme muscle spasms. Um, it is a, it can affect your moods. It is a very odd animal and it's not a one size fits all. And on top of that, my friend, I, I destroyed my adrenal system. Like I ruined it. And that, so I developed Addison's disease, which is an adrenal insufficiency. And that's also considered very rare. My body doesn't make enough adrenaline or cortisol to support me in high stress situations. So in those situations, I need to take medication, um, cortisoids, um, to get my system regulated again. So again, it messes with your moods. It messes with your energy levels. Holy smokes. It's a challenge. Yeah. Well, look, that's one thing I appreciate about you is that you've been transparent about a lot of things as you've just been now in your bio. Also in your bio, you've also mentioned that at one time you experienced depression. Can you tell us a little bit about that? One time. A lifetime. <laughs> like it's, uh, it's been a lifetime battle of just thriving through that disorder. Um, you know, there are people out there that say they've never experienced depression. They don't understand depression. I don't always buy that. Here's, here's what depression is. Depression is one of those moments where the things that brought you joy in life are no longer bringing you joy all the activities that you love doing and you go to do those and you still, they don't do a thing for you. You just feel numb and sadness and you can't see beyond your own self. It's just a place where really nothing matters. And it is lonely and it is incredibly sad. And it's not one of those things where a pep talk is going to snap you out of it. Everybody has different needs to work through that. And I had to learn how to, how to love it and accept it and also how to overcome it. And so I do love the fact that I have depression. I've learned how to fight it. And here's the reason why I love it. Depression just means that I am a very deep feeler. 
I feel things. I'm intuitive. I'm sensitive, which is a, also a quality I appreciate about myself. And depression for me is one of those moments where I feel too much. I am overwhelmed and overstimulated. I feel too much energy. And so I am grateful because it does remind me that the deep feeler I am, because the opposite side of that is that intuition, that ability to feel, I use that in my work as a, as a coach. And I use that to serve other people. I'm grateful that I can feel this deeply, but there are times, man, it is hard. And so why fight it? I, I just learned now that if you already feel like just complete garbage for the day, you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't make yourself feel bad for feeling bad. Also, it's just like submit to this thing, give yourself that time to work through it. Don't shame yourself for, for it. And you're going to get through that. And for me, there are certain things that I need. And for me personally, I just need somebody to not run away from me. Like put your arms on my shoulders, give me a hug. Tell me, tell me I'm safe. Tell me I'm okay, but I don't need a pep talk. I don't need any of that stuff. Just be there with me. Matt. I mean, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm just touched, you know, because most people, especially men, will never disclose that they've experienced depression. So how did you come to this place of being so transparent about it? I mean, you know, there are thousands of people going to hear you or, or the social media for this interview. How did you come to this place? I think it was early on, really. I learned it kind of in my youth uh-huh. that uh, being transparent and sharing your stories empowers others to share these too. It gives permission for others to share theirs too. And in the beginning, I did it though as a kid because it also got me praised though too as being vulnerable and so open and transparent. So I don't always think I I shared it from a healthy place, you know, because it it did get me attention. Later in life though, I did discover, though, how it it genuinely helped people, how it helped me, and that it's actually my gift. Like, my gift is, and for me and my faith, like, I I believe in God. So, like, for me and that, like, it was this thing where I've thought, like, God gives me these crazy challenges. It says, hey, man, it's not always going to be fun what I put you through, but I promise you, you'll make it, and then you're going to tell the world about what you learned and how you got through it. So I feel like I have the ability to articulate trauma, challenges, and adversity in ways that people can understand in ways where people who don't understand can start to understand. Mm-hmm. So it gives meaning. And it gives meaning to people with depression that don't know how to articulate it because they're so lost in it and it's hard to explain. So I try and use that gift to give words you know, to people who, who just don't know how to talk about it. So that's my favorite thing is when people write to me and say, holy cow, you nailed what I'm going through. I've never been able to say it the way you did, but that's exactly it. So I believe that is my gift. And why should I hoard that and keep it to myself? So I have a healthier relationship with that now. And I do it to serve others, not myself. So I will ask myself the motivation behind something when I'm choosing to be very transparent about something. I ask myself, what is my motivation in sharing this today? Is it to fill my own personal need and praise? Or is this because 
I feel called to help other people with this message. So it's yeah. never this victim statement of poor me, poor me. I'm going to share with you what I went through or what I'm going through, the lessons I'm learning from it, and some actionable steps that maybe you could take too that will help you in your journey. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. Uh, but, you know, and just to underscore what you just said, you share, you know, some of your life experiences in service to others. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's that's powerful. Now, you you have an amazing comeback story. That's also why I wanted to talk to you. So I want to explore this with you a little bit. Um, now, you know, you, you talk about a life of transformation. And what does that mean to you that, you know, that you have actually, and just in a nutshell, we want to, because I want to probe this, but a life of yeah. transformation. Yeah. It's not in a chapter of transformation. I think we all are, at, uh -huh. no matter what in life. But uh, for me, to get out of a world of addiction and feeding myself all of these things, it wasn't about abstaining from anything. Like, obviously, that's important. What it was about was understanding why I was addicted to something in the first place. Where was I medicating? What was bleeding? What was hurting? And so I had to attack that. I went through a boot camp of self-discovery work. You know, by the age of 30, I got a therapist. I found group work. You know, whatever it took, I, I was doing healthy activities again to help um, find where that pain was within me. And then I started trying to find... Uh, what it was I was called to do in this world to rediscover, you know, I don't, I don't really believe in reinventing yourself. I believe in rediscovering yourself because whatever you feel like you're reinventing, you're actually just discovering something that was already there that you may have disowned over the years because either you were bullied or told that that's silly, you know, or whatever it is, Somewhere along the line, you were told whatever your gift is that you want to do in life was just ridiculous and it was shamed away. So transformation for me really started with this call to adventure where there was trauma and there were challenges. And I could either be a victim in those situations and give up or I could answer that call to adventure and pursue something that will take me to the next level. So I'm constantly writing a comeback story. And what I've learned is every adversity moment is just training for the next one. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's pretty crazy. And like, I'm in, I'm in one right now. Like it's, it's always happening at some level. And, you know, I've discovered I have a traumatic brain injury too from too many concussions in my youth. And that's causing a lot of issues also. So yeah, transformation is something that's always happening, but it's about understanding. Here's the biggest thing I can tell you. The, it's about understanding you can't do it on your own. Like no one's meant to climb a mountain by themselves. I can't stress that enough. You should know that you're resourceful and creative and yes, you can get things done, but why do it by yourself? You only know what you know. You can't see your blind spots mm -hmm. and you don't always know what version of you is talking to you. You know, because sometimes it could be lifting you up and other times there's another version that's pushing you down. So don't do this alone. Find somebody in your corner to work with. Yeah. So I want to stay with this transformation. Because a lot of people, Matt, are talking about transformation. And sometimes when I hear them, it's like, okay, I've been transformed. It's over. But I think you're telling us something else. You're saying transformation is something that, you know, that's ongoing. Can you underscore yeah. that a little bit for us? Yeah, it's life. 
it's just life. Like we're always going to be challenged. There's always going to be adversity. Here's the thing. I, I hear so many people dread positive experiences because they know that it's going to crash eventually. They don't want to get too excited or happy about life because it's like, oh, the other shoe is going to drop here eventually. Uh, I can't get too. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, the wave is going to crash. Bad times will come again. So let's not act so surprised that when we have great moments that eventually something will happen again. That's just the way it is. So enjoy your highs, enjoy the great moments and know that when you have a bad time again, you'll get through it. You've gotten through them before, you'll get through it again. So why should you downplay your joy in life just because eventually something will happen again and you'll be challenged? Don't live like that. Choose to be excited, choose to be vulnerable. Yes, it hurts when we fall down, it hurts. But if we choose to have walls, we put walls up to minimize our chances of getting hurt and wounded and taken advantage of. Great. Congratulations. You've minimized that. You've also minimized your joy. Mm -hmm. You're living a nice, safe life. Mm -hmm. And most people complain about a safe life because they're like, you know, I never travel. I never do these things. Blah, 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 blah. And when they think about doing them, they don't because eventually this version of themselves, this voice in their head says, don't do that. Like we could get hurt. Mm -hmm. No, I don't want to live like that. I'm willing to get hurt. I have boundaries, not walls. Mm. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so look, you know, in your comeback story early on, you said that uh, you learned how to align your values, um, you know, with your life. Can you walk us through that? What are some of those values that help you align yourself? Yeah. So I designed, I define values a little differently than most people would. Some people define values as like, well, I have a value on faith and family and hard work and transparency. Like those are all beautiful words. What do they mean though to you? And that's where I find where people struggle. I'm like, okay, great. So what does you know, being driven as a value, what does that actually mean to you? And that's where people stumble. They're like, oh. so yeah, if you don't have a definition for it, then it's just a word. For me, like when I went through, you know, coaching school uh, with the Coaches Training Institute at the time, we did some values work. And one of the things I appreciated is that values are actually things that you do in life that bring out the best parts of you. They're activities, basically. And they're like these little boxes that when you open the box, all these things live inside it. So, for example, I had to look back at some peak experiences in my life, and that's where I saw a lot of my values living. One of them was hiking in Colorado. Like, I live in Maine already. The mountains are beautiful here. But Colorado, the mountains are a whole different ballgame. And I remember climbing a mountain. I get to the peak. It is just one of the most breathtaking things. I could see 360 degrees around me of just beautiful, beautiful scenery. And I'd spent most of my life looking at life like it was through a hole in a straw. And I only saw what was directly in front of me. That value of being on a mountain showed me how small my problems really are. It showed me how to look beyond myself and see the world around me. It taught me how to see through my peripheral vision it got me grounded. It connected me more with my faith. So holy smokes, 
this is a value for me, nature. Being in nature is a value. And so I know that if I invest time every week, because I can't climb mountains in Colorado every week to feel good, but I can do other things. I can go for a walk. I could make time for camping. I could work by a window if I need to. Like I can do little things that'll help feed that value. You know, today I'm sitting right in front of a window now. I like that. It helps me. And so I can feel the cool air. I can smell the fresh air, like the sunshine, all of those things. It connects me with my value of nature at the smallest level. And that feeds my soul. I have another one with music. You know, over here, I've got a, a, a piano, a few guitars, a saxophone. Uh, I like to sing. For me, music is one of those things that helps me express my emotions in ways that my words can't articulate. And it doesn't have to be writing my own songs. It can just be playing somebody else's song, but me, um, me articulating it in a different way that makes it my own. So that, again, helps me get all of my emotions out. And I perform now, you know, for people. I, 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 I am a musician. I used to say that I wasn't for the longest time. I disowned that. Oh, no, no, I'm not. I'm not a musician. No, I own that. It's a value of mine. So here's the thing. Playing guitar or playing music for just 15 minutes a week pours so much into my life. I'm more creative. I'm, uh, I'm feeling less stressed because I've gotten my emotions out. I'm a better human being. I'm definitely more creative. That's for sure. It helps tap into that. So I know what it costs me if I don't make time for these things. If I tell myself, I don't have time to play music this week. Well, guess what? Now I'm saying I have time to be stressed. I have time to have less creativity. I have time to not be grounded. I have uh, you know, time where I'm not diving into my faith. All because I'm telling myself I don't have time. I know what it costs me if I don't have time for those things. If I don't make time for those things. So those are just two. I truly believe that everyone has three to five core values. I think after five, they start to re repeat themselves. But three to five, they'll have some characteristics that weave them together. But then each one of them will have like at least one or two things that make them really specifically stand out on their own. So when you're done, it's a gorgeous quilt of just these beautiful things. And now you know what to fill those tanks with. Instead of filling it with addiction, with alcohol or pornography or food or buying things, now you have the cleanest burning fuel you could possibly have that's more sustainable now. You can yeah. go for miles off of doing one healthy activity. Well, I like the way you articulated that, but I want to probe a little more. So how did you come to, because people are going to ask, how can I identify? How did you come to identify, you know, nature, music? How did you come to say, well, these are my, these are among my core values? Yeah. You know, through some group work and through some uh, some coaching programs, you know, one of the things I learned was diving into a peak experience in life. And here's the thing. When I talk to clients about a peak experience in life and I ask them, tell me about a peak experience in life where everything felt perfect in that one snapshot in time. Think of it as just like somebody took a Polaroid at that time back. <laughs> and when it developed, like you looked at it and that just that moment captured perfection for you. And what we do in those moments, and it doesn't, here's the thing, it doesn't have to be a very profound moment. Go with the first one you think of. It doesn't have to be a wedding or the birth of a child. It could be something super simple, like a picnic that you went on. 
look at that moment and ask yourself, what did you think you were capable of doing in that moment? What were the activities that you were doing in life at that time? Where were you living? Who were the people you surrounded yourself with? I guarantee you most of your values live in that one moment. And so whether it was just yesterday or it was when you were eight years old, there's a way to relate to it. Don't discount what you come up with and tell yourself, I can't do that now. I have a mortgage. I have a family. Like, just go with the flow on this and let's figure out how you can integrate these things into your life again. Mm -hmm. Because remember who you are now, now that you're not doing it. No wonder why you're not happy. Yeah, that's that's great. That's great, Matt. Uh, You know, and in your narrative, there's some punch words that a lot of people talk about, but I want your take on them. And I'm going to throw them out, okay? Uh, The the first one is uh, forgiveness. That shows up. I've checked you out. And that shows up in some of the stuff that I found about you. Why is that so important for you? Why does that word come up for you? Because if it doesn't come up for me, resentment does. Mm. And resentment is poison. Resentment is one of those things where the expression of, you know, drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. (laughs) Like, uh, it is a toxic cancer. And without forgiveness, resentment will eventually show up. Some people don't like to explore forgiveness and they just like to put anger or sadness in a little box and stuff it away somewhere. It's not put away. It's still there and it will show up and manifest in other ways. You'll get short with people who are healthy in your life. You'll lash out. You'll do things to yourself that aren't very kind. It's not worth it. Forgiveness is just learning a lesson in something and finding a way to let go. Forgiveness doesn't just happen like that either. I, that's Forgiveness is a process. Mm. People just say, well, I've forgiven them. Have you really? Like, what work have you done on that? Have you just said the word? You know, forgiveness is finding a way to release this thing. You know, if maybe the person that you're forgiving is too toxic to see in person and forgive. So you have to find your own way to forgive. Or maybe they've passed away. There are little ceremonies you can do, like writing a letter, burning it, you know, all these different things that you can do, but you got to find a way to release this thing. Cause if you don't, if you choose to say, this is unforgivable, boy, you are just poisoning yourself. Yeah. Holy smokes. But I'll tell you what, I've forgiven people for things, but I didn't forgive myself. And Mm. that is the worst form of unforgiveness. And it's also the hardest thing to forgive, at least in my opinion, with myself, but I've also seen it with hundreds of people that I've worked with over the years. Self-forgiveness is a real pain because there's this idea that if we don't, if we, if we keep that unforgiveness there, we'll learn from it. And it will be a constant reminder to never do those things again. We feel like we need to carry that punishment so we never forget that is that is not no your mistakes are not a lifelong sentence that's not that's not cool at all and so look if you feel like you can forgive other people what makes you so damn special that you can't forgive yourself you're not unique like no so there's no point in not forgiving yourself learn from it find the lessons in that situation learn from it and take accountability and move onward. 
Because if you just live in this place of unforgiveness with yourself, you've completely limited what you're capable of doing in this life. And you're not going to be able to serve people with the capability that you would have if you release that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's powerful. Um, the other word, and we'll get more into, into how you coach in a moment, but uh, I've read or heard you say that you learned early on, or maybe you're still learning to do it, stop living like a victim. Can you help us understand what you mean by that? Yeah. Being a victim is just in a place for me where I'm just saying, why me? Why me? Why is this happening to me? And also saying things like, I can't do that because I'll just fail. Uh, it never works out for me. What's the point in trying anymore? It's a thing where I could complain to somebody over and over again about my problems and have these conversations where I'm, I've given like come up with solutions, but I never do them. I just keep complaining and complaining. Poor me, poor me. Look, there are things that happen in our lives and we're allowed to vent. And we're allowed to express our feelings about how they are. But at some point, you need to do something about them. Because if you don't, you're making a choice to live in your trauma to live in your adversity. You're, you're making a choice. If you're choosing not to get help with it, you're choosing to live in it. So yeah, you're choosing to be a victim when there are solutions out there. There are always solutions out there. Anybody who tells me there isn't, I challenge you because I've been there. I've been broke. I've been sick. All of the things that you can throw at me, I've had family, you know, like a house, like, a, like all these different things. You name it. I've been there. Uh, trauma too. There's always a way. Free resources out there, positive people, tons of stuff out there. Yeah. So being a victim is a choice of staying in something, but it's still okay to take time and express what happened, to get that out, to talk about the hurt, to talk about the pain. But at some point, you have to end that party. And I, I tell people that I work with too, they're having a pity party and they're like, I'm just, I'm not feeling, I'm, I know how I should feel. I don't feel it right now. I'm like, great, have a pity party. It's fine. Commit to it. Give yourself a, a fixed amount of time where you're going to just commit to just feeling sorry for yourself. Do it. Give yourself a whole hour, have a whole party for yourself, but then make a choice to get out of it and start creating some action. So feel your feelings. Yeah and then find a way forward. Right, all right. Well, you know, Matt Gagnon today is a coach, speaker, writer, et cetera, and you just gave us a glimpse into one of the things that you speak about, and that is motivation. Um, how did Speaker Gagnon come to recognize that motivation is one of his, let's call it superpowers, motivating others? I think it was since I was a kid, I mean, I was always able to articulate things and feel things, and I wasn't scared to speak up. Uh, there was a chapter in life I was because I, I got bullied and I, I silenced my voice. Um, but I saw the impact that it had. And I had a very profound moment in 2014 when I started going to coaching school and I started pursuing a life in coaching. And it was something that I discovered already in high school, 
but I was reconnected with it in this moment. And I remember going into this classroom for the first class, you know, of this program. And I remember volunteering to be coached in front of the room by two facilitators. Well, one of them was coaching me. The other one was watching. And I was all in on this thing because I was investing a ton of money into it. So I said, I'm all in. I feel like this is my life purpose. I shared everything. I got super vulnerable. I mean, I cried. I was angry. All of these things. And just 15 minutes of coaching, I was all in. And then I remember they said, well, let's take a break because you could just hear a pin drop in that room. It was so quiet. And I remember walking up to grab some water and you know, clean myself up a little bit from crying. Mm. And the facilitators came over and they were like, I don't think you understand what you just did. And I was like, well, I cried a lot in front of everybody. And they're like, no, no, no. This is like within the first hour of this program for three days that of the first class, you just gave everybody in this class permission to go that deep. Mm. You told everyone it's okay to open up that you're safe here because you were safe here. You trusted it. They were like, that usually doesn't happen until like halfway through day two. So this is going to be a very special class because you mm -hmm. just told everybody it's okay to do this. Mm -hmm. That was huge for me. And I knew that that was motivating. And I knew that showing up in life and taking risks and then talking about it was motivating for others too. It gave people motivation is just really honestly about, I feel like giving permission to others that, Hey, it's okay to take chances. It's okay to fail. You know, there are ways forward. So I lead by example, wherever I can. And that's why I share my flaws. I think it's very important to share that. I don't trust perfect people. And I think that's honestly, that's what's made me a successful coach too, is that I'm not afraid to show my flaws. There are times I've written articles where I'm like, oh my gosh, like no one's ever going to hire me now. I, I look like a train wreck. But no, they still do. Why? Because I'm relatable. I've done the work too. So yeah, I go through really hard stuff. But guess what? I have a therapist. I have a coach. I have a village that lifts me up because I need that. Servants need people to serve them too. And that's huge. Yeah, that so I'm not huge. afraid to share yeah. my flaws. I just happen to have more tools in my tool belt than someone who, who's going through it for the first time. Uh-huh. Sounds good. I feel it. I feel you, brother. Look, you've joined some prominent writers and speakers in underscoring habits. We all know about habits, but, you know, Stephen Covey did it, Habits of Highly Successful People, a more recent book, Atomic Habits. And now you, you know, this talk to us about habits and what, what, what are you telling us? Tell us a little bit about what you share about habits. You know, it's funny. I was doing programs around habits before I'd read Atomic Habits by James Clear. And I, I love his philosophy on it. Um, unfortunately, I thought I was being so original, but it's, I, there are no original thoughts. It's just original deliveries. Um, but I learned how habits and discipline, how they can be monotonous and boring. They help you live an extraordinary life. And there's a minimal investment sometimes into our habits, but they can have a massive return on investment. So... I remember my first big routines process was mornings. And that was about five years ago. I came back from Austin, Texas and relocated back to Maine. And I was living in the middle of the woods um, with my family. And I remember telling myself, I am not a morning person. 
I hate mornings. I love my nights. I'm more creative at night. I get more things done at night. The truth is I never gave mornings a fair chance at all. I only got up early if I had to be somewhere at the airport, maybe, or just whatever. I'd white knuckle my way out of bed. The question was, what kept me in bed in the morning? Why did I sleep to the last second? And the truth is, I didn't like the expectations of the day. I was, it was anxiety. I don't want to get up because I want to delay expectations. Because if I get up early, I'm going to have to face that. And I also was always telling myself, I'd really like to work out. I'd really like to journal. I'd really like to do all these things. And I would never make time for them. And so not doing that was just like shaming. So it's like, why even ask to do those things of yourself if you're going to never do them? So just stop talking about it or do it. So I decided I would get up at 4.30 a.m. every day for 30 straight days. I'm an extreme individual, but I decided how much time I wanted for myself every morning before everybody else got up. So 4.30 was my number. And I just started small. I started with just waking up and celebrating the fact that I'm awake. I had zero expectations on what to do. I was up and I would just be with my thoughts. And slowly but surely, I started getting hungry to do more things. I wanted to work out. I would uh, put some, I would start a fire in the fireplace, you know, during the winter time. I'd go for a cold winter walk and I would just be in the stillness of things. I let myself get naturally hungry to do things. And that's what felt good. It started with just a little momentum. And so I learned the things that fed my soul. And the one rule I had was I'm not going to wake up early so I can do more work. Absolutely not. I will start my day just the way I always do um, when it's time, the way I've always started it at the same time. This time is my time. This is when I feed myself with the things I say I'm always going to do, but I never do. So what would happen if I did? It made my work during the day so much more efficient, so much better, and I wasn't white knuckling through the day. So those things were massive for me. What I didn't expect was for it to be a business. No expectation for that. I filmed it. On day one, I decided to film it from Instagram Live and share it with everybody. That started a whole thing. Every day, I shared at least two minutes about how I was feeling. First thing when I woke up, just the, the ugly of it all, the, the, the winds, all of it. And I uh, remember getting through it. And towards the end, I had somebody write to me. Uh, and it's, you know, he shares a story. His name's Ryan Gill. Find him on LinkedIn. He's an amazing human being. And he wrote to me and just said, hey, great work on these mornings that you're doing. Mornings are really hard for me. It's my Achilles heel. I'm a successful business person, but I could be better. I'd love to sign up for your morning program. And I said yes to something I hadn't done yet. <laughs> I was like, I don't have a morning program, but I created one for him. I created Atomic Mornings and it turned into something really beautiful. Now I get to work with people all over the world in helping them create morning programs. And it's not really about what you do. This is about you creating more emotional awareness and more physical awareness about yourself to understand yourself better. I want you to know how you feel when you wake up. Because if you wake up and you don't know how you feel, I promise everyone else in your life will know how you feel. So if you educate yourself, you're now empowering yourself to do something about it. And so it's a beautiful thing. Habits, habits change my life and they've even saved my life. That's great. That's great. 
I like the way you expressed it. You said there's nothing new under the sun, but new deliveries. I've never heard that before. I'm sure, you know, I've just never heard it before. And you did the same thing, at least for me, with shame. You know, a lot of people talk about shame, but you talk about the weight of shame. Take us into that. Yeah. Shame is so heavy. And it's something I've seen people commit to. I have to feel the shame. So it's a reminder never to do that again, ever. Boy, that does not feel good. All you're doing in life is just the bare minimum to avoid repeating that mistake. There's a great way to just reframe things. Honestly, there's so many people that just say, I just don't want to have a bad day. I'm not going to have a bad day. I'm going to, I just don't want to mess up. And so great. That's a great goal, but you're all you're going to think about is not messing up. That's it. And that's not very motivating. It'll help you get through the day. But what if we reframe that to like, I'm going to have an amazing day. I'm going to have a great day. I'm going to be successful today. Same goal. You're still avoiding not having a bad day, but you're saying it differently. You're focusing on creating a great day, you know, finding a way forward. It changes the whole attitude about things. But shame is just poison. I am committed to letting this make me feel bad forever. I failed miserably. It was humiliating. I'll never forget it. So that way I never repeat it. Learn your lessons from it. That's great. But eventually you need to let go of the pain. Mm. There's mm. no point in carrying. Cause I guarantee you, if you're somebody who carries shame, you're probably someone who will also cheers people on to let go of theirs. You probably mm. tell people, Hey, that don't, you know, like you help them through it. But again, what makes you so special that you can't forgive yourself? That you can't ask for help. There are so many people out there who give everything to anyone, but they won't ask for what they need. <laughs> what makes you so special? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. We all need help. So again, that burden, that weight of shame, oh, it just is huh. so hard to carry after a while. Mm. It brings us down and you can't enjoy life. What's the point of that? Shame is a life sentence to your mistakes. Mm-hmm. Woo, that's good. And look, I, I want to talk with you a moment uh, in a moment about your how you work with others, but I got two other questions before we get to that. And the first one is about your TED talk. Um, so, you know, what was it like for you? You know, that's pretty big time, TED talk. Yeah. Um that was such a unique experience. One, it was basically we called it the COVID talks because it mm -hmm. happened during COVID. And I was really excited about it. I was going to be going to Indiana to deliver this at Crawford um, University. And it got canceled. I think it got canceled right around March 13th, Friday the 13th of 2020, when the whole world started to shut down. We wanted to quarantine. Everything was canceled. Mm -hmm. And it was supposed to be rescheduled. It was rescheduled. It was rescheduled. And then it was canceled. And then it was resurrected from the dead. And we're going to do this thing. Mm. I'll tell you what, like I've always been a speaker. Ted Talks taught me how to be a very disciplined speaker, how to be mm. a better speaker. I'm not somebody who likes to write my speeches out. I don't, I don't like doing that. Ted wants you to write it out because they want to know exactly what you're going to say. And that made me learn a different narrative about my story. I, I saw it in a different way because I had to sit down with it more. I thought I knew my story. I talked about it many times. I always learned something new, but boy, I took it to a whole other level. And when it was resurrected from the dead, 
I wanted to, we could, they decided we're not going to hold it in Indiana. For the first time, we're going to decide that since we can't have a crowd, we're going to hold it in the host city of every speaker. So instead of us all going to Indiana, we're going to all have our talks wherever we live. So I get to have mine in Austin, Texas. I got to pick the venue. They would bring, they would hire a film crew. Some people did it in their home or, you know, inside a, a room. I chose to do mine on a stage. I found a cool place in Austin. I did it on a stage and I delivered it as if the, there was a full crowd. There was only six people in that crowd, you know, because it was COVID. But I wanted to deliver it with that energy there that I was speaking to thousands of people because I knew eventually thousands would watch it. It was a beautiful experience. It was very humbling. There was a lot that went behind it. There were a lot of lessons learned. But I'm so grateful that I got to do it because my motivation to do it was only to serve others. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, now, is your book complete or is it in process? My book? Oh, I've co-written, I've co-authored a few, um, uh -huh. but my own personal book? No, that's that's still in process. Yeah, that's still okay. in progress for sure. Now okay. I have to figure out and focus on what chapters of life I really want to discuss right now, because there's a lot to that book. <laughs> okay. All right. So now I know you work with others, you're a professional coach, and one of the things that you share about coaching and just about speaking is to encourage people, I suppose, to live with a courageous heart. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? And how did this, if you can you know, recall this, how did this come to you? Live with a yeah. courageous heart. I mean, there's power just in the phrase. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> I'll yeah. sum it up like this. It's living with a courageous heart is learning how to live life aligned by your values and not the values mm. of society or others. That takes courage because if you live life by your values, you will be criticized. You will be judged. And it's not always easy. You're going to you're going to scare some people. You're going to scare people because they're going to think that they're making those choices and they're going to judge you like, oh, my gosh, you can't do that. No, it's irresponsible. Um, so that's that's where I figured it out. I realized that, like, I could go against the grain, against society's checkboxes and I could live life my way instead because it's fulfilling. And that's my gift. So yeah. and living with a courageous heart really reminded me of the story of David and Goliath. You know, uh, David was one of the first underdog stories. You know, whether you're a person of faith or not, it's a great story. There's tons of metaphors and learning lessons in it. What I learned about David was he had no fans on either side of the field. Nobody was rooting for this guy. He was also a rule breaker because he was fighting Goliath with a long game with a slingshot versus up close with a sword and a shield where he knew he'd get lost. You know, he'd lose. He also didn't people please he didn't take the king's armor when he was told like this is the best stuff i've got where he's like i don't know how to fight in that no they laughed at him what does this guy do he goes out and he slays this giant because it was the thing that he knew was right to do he didn't care about the praise he didn't care about what anyone else thought about him he did that battle with a courageous heart regardless of judgment mm -hmm. and that's how i want to live life i Use that story to remember what are the giants in my life that I should be running towards versus just afraid of them. And sometimes the hard truth is you look in the mirror and realize that you're being your own Goliath. Uh -huh. And there's another truth, too, where when you're David in one story, you're someone's Goliath in another story. So there's a constant learning lesson in this. Right. Well, I tell you what, I've never heard David and Goliath impacted that way. I love it. I really do. You know, one of the things that's foundational in your coaching, if I got you right, is that you coach people around how to overcome 
their limiting beliefs. Would you just give us a couple of glimpses into how you, you know, you work with executives, uh, you know, professionals all over the place. How do you do that? How do you guide people to overcome, to identify first mm-hmm. that overcome a limiting belief? Well, let's figure out what it sounds like. A lot of people don't know what their limiting beliefs are because they can't hear it. They're too close to mm. it. It's just like in sports. You can't see yourself um, shoot a basketball. You can't watch yourself swing a bat. You don't always see the punches you're missing. You're too close to it. So we have coaches. Coaches see our blind spots. They see where we're, our technique is off. We should have the same thing in life. Some people, when they talk, they apologize constantly. I'm sorry. Or they minimize something they said. It's so positive. Like, you know, yeah, holy cow, I've got this great idea. I'd love to do it, but I don't know. It's too risky. Or I, I just don't have the time or resources. What are you doing? Like, you're not even giving it a chance. Like, limiting beliefs can shut us down in the smallest of ways. And again, like what I said earlier, being afraid that the other shoe is going to drop and bad times are going to come. Yes, yeah. they are. They're, you know, But the thing is, is that why hold yourself back the truth about a limiting belief is is that it's a voice it's a version of you that was created through experiences in life where you were hurt burned or taken advantage of and it has turned into an unqualified leader in your head it's Mm. trying to keep you safe Mm. and it will put you down and minimize things so you don't take the risk but here's the truth that I know about it is every time I hear a limiting belief voice that shows up, I know it's not there just to mess with me. It's there to distract me from my greatness, from my transformation, for something that I could do that could change my entire life. It is trying to distract me. And so if I can look beyond that, I can see my light. I can see my destiny. I can see what I'm supposed to do, even in the smallest of ways. Overcoming your limiting beliefs helps you show up in life. And so I identify that voice with people. I listen to the things you're not saying. I look at your body language. I, I listen to your tone and I'll help educate you on what I'm seeing and feeling. And again, with education comes empowerment. So once we know, now we know that we can do something about it. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I love working with executives and high performers is, is that one, people say, well, they pay better. I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely they do. But here's the other thing too. I'm only one human being and I want to impact as many people as possible. And when I work with those people, I know that the results of that are going to trickle down to a lot of others. It could mean that they become better leaders, which impacts their teams. And that trickles down to their better uh, family people, their better you know, uh, siblings or spouses, what are better friends. It impacts a lot of people. It also impacts innovation, entrepreneurs, business owners. If you have a limiting belief, that keeps you from putting something that could change the world out there, man, we're missing out. So it can create jobs, like all kinds of things happen, you know, when we work with that. But the deal is, is that just because someone's an executive doesn't mean that they have different problems. Absolutely not. Truth is I hear the same voice out of any, any person out there. There's usually one consistent voice that says one, who do you think you are to do that? The second one is um, I hope no one finds out. I don't know what I'm doing. That's such a common one. No matter what position somebody's in, somebody's always like, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I hope no one finds out. No matter what position someone's been in life, I've heard that voice. Mm-hmm. I got you. Right. Hey, look, I know we're almost out of time, but I got one more thing that we'd love for you to just introduce us to. Is that okay with you? Just one yeah. more question? Sure. Okay. So I know that um, the House of Genius 
shows up in your work and maybe some people have heard about it and don't know what that's about. Can you enlighten us? Yeah, you know, it's uh, something I haven't been a part of for, for a while now. Um, after COVID, it, it got a little challenging, but it's such a brilliant idea. And, it, and you can look it up online when you look up House of Genius because it, it exists in cities kind of all over the world now. But it's a collective. It's this belief system that no one person is just a genius. But as a collective, we can be where we can take people from all walks of life. And what it was is that it would invite a random crowd of people who wanted to attend. And you could show up with only your first name on your name tag. And you weren't allowed to talk about what you do for work. You couldn't talk about that because we wanted everybody to be on the same playing field. And somebody would then present something, a product or a business idea. And they had a couple problems with it. They had two questions that they wanted to get answers on from people. And it allowed everybody to take in that information and then contribute ideas to it, ask probing mm -hmm. questions, and then contribute ideas. But by not doing what people do for work, we're open-minded to what everybody has to say without any preconceived notion. It was a beautiful mm -hmm. thing. Didn't matter if you're talking to um, a successful business owner or uh, a maintenance person or a teacher or whatever, like, you know, it's all positions you just weren't allowed to judge. So you took mm -hmm. feedback equally. And then eventually towards the end, that's when people would reveal what they do for work and who they are. And then they build beautiful connections. But it was really a cool way of just uh, understanding that as a collective, we can be a genius and yeah, that we should I love it. obviously not judge anybody for what they do because beautiful ideas exist in all of us. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Well, Matt, I tell you what, uh, our time together has just flown by like crazy. I really enjoyed talk with you. And I got to tell you, I, I felt you. I'm going to go jump through some walls today. What's Thanks, up? man. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed having you today, Matt. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Okay. You've been listening to the Possibility Action Network podcast. Our guest today has been Matt Gagnon. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton. Until next time, good day.